Well, ladies and gentlemen, if I might have your attention again, we have another presentation for this evening and pivoting to another important part of the history of American government uh, will be my colleague, uh, Dr. Christopher Preble, speaking on war, foreign affairs, and American government. Chris is the vice president for um, uh, military and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's responsible for a whole team of researchers who deal with American foreign and military policy. He's a published author, books and journal articles. He has a doctorate in American history, was a, uh, an officer in the United States Navy, and the most important and the high point, and I want to stress this for all of the college and high school students here, he was an intern at the Cato Institute. Please welcome Chris. Thank you, Tom, it's true, yes. It's all downhill after being an intern at the Cato Institute, and nothing can compare to that. Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, as Tom mentioned, I'm gonna talk uh, for a little while tonight about uh, war, foreign affairs, and American government. Most of this draws on material uh, that's coming from a, a book that I have coming out next year through libertarianism.org. It's called uh, Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. Um, so if this sounds interesting to you, buy a copy and buy a couple for your friends. Um, the founders of the American Republic, their views on foreign policy set forth by uh, James Madison, George Washington in the late 1780s and 1790s, and then reiterated by uh, John Quincy Adams in 1821. They guided U.S. foreign policy, U.S. government uh, conduct uh, through to the end of the 19th century. Uh, but then... In the late uh, 19th century and through the 20th century, U.S. leaders' attitudes about uh, foreign policy shifted away from the founders' vision, and not unrelated, so did their views on the size and nature of American government. So what were those founding principles, and what were uh, some of the key episodes in this transformation? The first thing you have to understand is that uh, the preamble of the Constitution explains that one of the core objects, of course, of the, of the new government was to provide for the common defense. And uh, the manner about it would go about doing that was spelled out pretty clearly in uh, the legislative portions of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. So these are things that should be fairly familiar to you, things like define and punish piracy and offenses against the laws of nature, uh, declare war, uh, laws of uh, nations, excuse me, declare war, uh, to raise and support armies, um, but for no longer than two years, I'm gonna come back to that, to provide and maintain a navy, and to provide uh, for calling out the militia, for training the militia, and to using the militia to suppress insurrections or uh, invasions. So, just to be completely clear, so we're all paying attention, no standing army. No standing army. Um, and I could say that that was really remarkable at the time. It wasn't completely remarkable at the time. In fact, many countries back then uh, did rely on mercenaries and things like that. But the, the founders' views on uh, a permanent military were so emphatic, widespread. Uh, I'm going to treat you to a, to a few examples of this. Um, James Madison, the Constitutional Convention, 1787. A standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. 
Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Now, Madison, you may know, did not serve in the Revolutionary Army, but no less a figure than George Washington himself agreed with Madison. He advised his countrymen to av avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments, which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to Republican liberty. Uh, the vast majority of America's landowning aristocracy, writes Bruce Porter in War and the Rise of the State, had an almost congenital distrust of standing armies, which their ancestors for generations had identified with despotism. Several years ago, my former colleague uh, at Cato, Justin Logan, wrote an article in the American Conservative, uh, which took note of the remarkable change in tone and sentiment toward the military. This is what he wrote. The American founders The American founders detested the signs of a bloated state, standing armies, a large fiscal military federation, and a capacious national bureaucracy. Justin goes on, it may be going too far to say that today's conservatives would denounce the founding fathers as unpatriotic conservatives, but not much too far. While members of the right now flutter like schoolgirls at the mention of military leaders like General David Petraeus, the founders scorned the prospect of military leaders becoming figures of worshipful esteem. Here were a few of Justin's favorite examples of this. In, 19, in 1783, Revolutionary War veteran Adanus Burke warned, military commanders acquiring fame are generally in their hearts aristocrats and enemies to the popular equality of a republic. John Randolph saw no serious threat to the Republic and, ording, and accordingly denounced the army as loungers who live upon the public, who consume the fruits of their honest industry under the pretext of protecting them from a foreign yoke. He sneered at the idea that a country of virtuous and self-sufficient Republicans would be forced to seek the protection of a handful of ragamuffins. Lastly, Benjamin Rush, the famous uh, one of the founders, uh, and a, a medical doctor, of course, suggested placing signs above the entrance to the Department of War, reading, an office for butchering the human species and a widow and orphan making office. Indeed. So the sentiments of the founders on this point were very, very clear. So how do you avoid these things? Well, it's simple, really. Um, not really. It's simple. Uh, stay out of unnecessary wars. This is what Madison said about war. Of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debt and taxes, and armies, debts, and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. The Constitution provided for making it difficult to go to war. He explained to, uh, Madison explained to Jefferson, the Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly with studied care vested the question of war in the legislature. On another occasion, Madison said that that clause was the most important in the entire document, the clause which vested the war powers in the legislature. How else 
to avoid foolish wars, besides depending upon the legislature, which <laughs> hasn't worked out <clears throat> all that well. Anyway, how else to avoid foolish wars? Well, that guidance can be found in George Washington's farewell address. Washington said, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. As the nation's power grew and Washington was sure that it would, potential belligerents would be more inclined to respect that neutrality. When that time came, Washington predicted, we may choose peace or war as our interest, guided by justice, shall counsel. In the meantime, however, the new nation should steer clear of permanent alliances. It should undertake such efforts so as to establish a respectful, respectable defensive posture and to safely trust to temporary alliances for extraordinary emergencies. In a letter to a friend, Washington explained, separated as we are by a world of water from other nations, if we are wise, we shall surely avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. Thomas Jefferson, of course, in his inaugural affirmed this wisdom. He pledged a foreign policy of peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. <clears throat> now, I think it's fair to say that some of this was of necessity. The founders had great dreams, but they recognized the limited power for realizing those dreams, especially in the early days of the Republic. But I think to dwell too much on that ignores the extent to which the founders constrained the power of the state. The circumstances weren't merely forced on them, they embraced them. They forced these limits on themselves. And in some respect, that's all the more remarkable given that they were, after all, living in a fairly dangerous environment, was surrounded by hostile enemies everywhere. And yet, despite that, the founders and their successors were determined to hold the line against militarism and foreign adventurism. Echoing Washington, John Quincy Adams publicly spelled out the ideal American approach to foreign policy in a speech on July 4th, 1821. I'm gonna read several passages. I'm sure I can't do it the same justice as Adams. I'm not going to affect though an early English accent or something, I'll just, I'll just read it. In the progress of 40 years since the acknowledgement of our independence, he explained, we have gone through many modifications of internal government and through all the vicissitudes of peace and war with other mighty nations. But never, never for a moment have the great principles consecrated by the declaration of this day been renounced or abandoned. What were those principles? When people from around the world ask, what has America done for the benefit of mankind? Adams had a ready answer. We had with one voice, he explained, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundations for government. The nation had held forth the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom and generous reciprocity, and uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and often to disdainful ears, the language of equal justice, equal liberty, and equal rights. But while Adams believed that Americans should proclaim these principles, he was equally adamant that we not fight for them. On the contrary, the United States had, without a single exception, respected the independence of other nations while asserting and maintaining her own. She had abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when the conflict has been for the principles to which she clings as to the last vital drop that visits the heart. 
Americans understood that great contests would be fought in the ensuing centuries between inveterate power and emerging right, but they were equally sensitive to the fact that their armed involvement in distant disputes would undermine their very claim to be an exemplar of liberty and good governance. He concluded with a flourish. He was, after all, entertaining an audience on a 4th of July celebration. It goes something like this. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will recommend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would evolve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. The frontlet upon her brows would no longer beam with the ineffable, I knew I was going to screw that word up, ineffable, no longer beam with the ineffable splendor of freedom and independence, but in its stead would soon be substituted an imperial diadem flashing in false and tarnished luster the murky radiance of dominion and power. She might become the dictatress of the world. She would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. Needless to say, this speech was read over and over again for decades. But just two years after he spoke those words, Adams, as James Monroe's Secretary of State, was largely responsible for what we now know as the Monroe Doctrine. The American continents by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintain are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any European powers. However, with the existing colonies or dependencies of any European power, we have not interfered and shall not interfere. Shorter, hands off mutual non-interference. Not merely that the United States would oppose European intervention in the Western Hemisphere, but also that the United States would not intervene in theirs. Now, in fairness, that did not stop the US government from territorial expansion in its hemisphere. Even then, some questioned the wisdom or the need to do so for the purposes of defending the nation from foreign threats. The likelihood of such threats materializing, they said, were vanishingly small. According to a 28-year-old Abraham Lincoln in a speech in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, January 1838, the greater danger came from within. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted, in their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. So at what point is the approach of danger to be expected? If it ever reach us, it must spring us 
it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Around that same time, Daniel Webster fretted over, quote, the dangerous tendency and doubtful consequences to enlarge the boundaries of this country or the territories over which our laws are now established. If we would make our institutions permanent, he continued, there must be some limit to the extent of our territory. Well, I won't be giving away too much of the game to let you know that it didn't work out that way. Uh, eventually, of course, the United States of America spread its dominion over the entirety of the temperate latitudes of North America between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. By the late 19th century, however, something quite different was driving the quest for new territories in far-flung places. The key to national greatness, explained U.S. Navy Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan, was control of the seas made possible by a strong and active Navy. This approach, of course, explicitly rejected the policy recommended by America's founders, and he was well aware. Quote, I am frankly an imperialist, he wrote, in the sense that no nation, certainly no great nation, should henceforth maintain the policy of isolation which fitted our early history. Imperialism, the extension of national authority over alien communities, is a dominant note in the world politics of today. Well, this was realized in, in the most dramatic way, uh, not long after Mahan wrote those words, with war with Spain in 1898. And the expansionists like Mahan used that war to secure America's status as a global power. President William McKinley asserted, we must keep all we get until the war ended, and once the war is over, we must keep what we want. These new acquisitions eventually included Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, Guam and Wake Atoll and the Pacific. The most important prize, arguably, was Hawaii, which, of course, wasn't even a Spanish possession. But someone along the way figured out that it might be kind of useful on the way to the Philippine Islands. So why don't we take that, too? The acquisition of these distant lands, however, proved a step too far for a number of Americans. If the U.S. government could justify expanding its writ to an archipelago of islands more than 8,500 miles away from Washington, D.C., then there was no practical limit to what it could do or what the United States of America might ultimately entail. And the leading arguments against overseas expansion in this era echoed John Quincy Adams' warnings from 1821. For example, when anti-imperialists met at Boston's Faneuil Hall on June 15, 1898, they resolved, the mission of the United States is to help the world by an example of successful self-government and that to abandon the principles and the policies under which we have prospered and embrace the doctrine and practices now called imperial is to enter the path which, with other great republics, has ended in the downfall of free institutions. One of my favorite speeches from this era was by uh, the social scientist William Graham Sumner, speech at Yale University on January 16, 1899, entitled The Conquest of the United States by Spain. Yes, that's, that's the conquest of the United States by Spain. Sumner contended that Spain was the very epitome 
of an imperialistic state. And the United States had been since its founding the chief representative of the revolt and reaction against this kind of state. Expansion and imperialism, Sumner continued, would entail throwing away some of the most important elements of the American symbol and adopting those of Spain. He foresaw resistance to American rule in the Philippines, and there was much, as not so different from that which brought down the Spanish Empire. The fatal flaw in the imperialist vision was its inability to accommodate the subject people's desire to be left alone. Americans of all people, Sumner invade, must understand the importance of self-determination. The doctrine that all men are equal has come to stand as one of the cornerstones of the temple of justice and truth. It was set up as a bar to just this notion that we are so much better than others that it is liberty for them to be governed by us. Sumner saw in the imperialist enthusiasm for expansion abroad, a tendency towards grandiose promises and foolishly ambitious objectives, all at a time when the nation was struggling to deal with problems ranging from vicious racism to rampant political corruption. Quote, the imperialists say that Americans can do anything. They say that they do not shrink from responsibilities. They are willing to run into a hole, trusting to luck and cleverness to get out. Upon a little serious examination, the offhand disposal of an important question of policy by declaration that Americans can do anything proves to be only a silly piece of bombast. And upon a little reflection, we find our hands are quite full at home of problems by the solutions of which the peace and happiness of the American people could be greatly increased. The United States was not immune to error. There were real limits to what the U.S. government could do in the world. And to admit as much was not unpatriotic. On the contrary, those who waved away America's limited power and who claimed that it could do anything ignored why the founders imposed such restrictions in the first place, to preserve a republic and prevent the rise of monarchy. We cannot govern dependencies consistently with our political system, Sumner concluded. And if we try it, the state which our fathers founded will suffer a reaction which will transform it into another empire just after the fashion of all the old ones. Just a few months after this speech, George Frisbee Hoare, senator from Massachusetts, was debating on the Senate floor the ratification of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Spanish-American War. He warned that efforts undertaken to stifle self-rule in America's colonies would undercut liberalism at home. If a strong people try to govern a weak one against its will, the home government will get despotic too. You cannot main despotism in Asia and a republic in America. If you try to deprive even a savage or a barbarian of his just rights, you can never do it without becoming a savage or a barbarian yourself. Well, yet again, the imperialists did not prevail. The United States retained the Philippines and other possessions acquired from Spain and continued to become more heavily involved in foreign affairs through the first half of the 20th century, of course, most importantly in World Wars I and II. Um, on reflection, however, it's not obvious that the United States would not eventually return to its historic roots even after World War II those roots of non-intervention and leading by example. After all, let's not forget, uh, immediately after the armistice with uh, Japan in September of 1945, the Army and Navy of the United States shrank dramatically. 
The men came home, and then there was, uh, well, a baby boom, you know. You know what I mean. Anyway, uh, however, a critical set of events from roughly 1946 to, to the middle of 1950s sort of, in, sort of cast in stones, cast in concrete, a new approach to uh, dealing with the rest of the world. And around that time, uh, a number of folks inside of the US government were uh, working on a policy document that we now know as NSC 68. It became the blueprint for how the United States would fight and win the Cold War. It was first presented to President Harry Truman in April of 1950, but he, he balked, he put it in a drawer, so to speak. But the shock of the Korean War, which came in June, of that year, uh, around that same time, the victory of the Chinese communists over the, uh, the nationalists and the advances in the Soviet nuclear program, it was a great shock to learn the Soviets had a nuclear weapon, uh, convinced him to change his mind. And so in September of 1950, he approved this document as official policy, and it was effectively the blueprint for the Cold War, even though it was not made public uh, until the 1970s, actually. Here's what it said, here's part of what it said. The Soviet Union is animated by a new fanatic faith, antithetical to our own, and seeks to impose its absolute authority over the rest of the world. The risks we face are of a new order of magnitude, commensurate with the total struggle in which we are engaged. These risks crowd in on us in a shrinking world of polarized power so as to give us no choice, ultimately, between meeting them effectively or being overcome by them. Budgetary considerations will need to be subordinated to the stark fact that our very independence as a nation may be at stake. But it wasn't all bad. The United States, the document said, could achieve a substantial increase in output and could thereby increase the allocation of resources to a buildup of the economic and military strength of itself and its allies without suffering a real decline in the standard of living. In other, in other words, to paraphrase, we could do these good things and grow stronger, and if the government grew as well, it could grow and do other useful things. Guns and butter. What's not to love? Well, not everyone agreed, and thankfully for us, the person who perhaps disagreed most strongly was President of the United States in 1953. Um, so I'm gonna finish with two speeches, two of my favorite speeches from one of my favorite people in American history, Dwight Eisenhower. In April of 1953, President Eisenhower, he'd only been in the job for a couple months, um, it was right after the death of uh, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, and he gave a speech in, in sort of hopeful that the war, the Cold War uh, could end. Uh, and he was far less sanguine, however, than the authors of NSC 68, that it wouldn't be such a bad thing, would it, for us to fight this war after all? So there was just this kernel of optimism. He hoped the new leadership in the Soviet Union would reciprocate his expressions of goodwill and would welcome his stated desire for peace. If they did not, however, the consequences would be grim. The best and worst cases can be simply stated, he said. The worst is atomic war. The best would be this, a life of perpetual fear and tension, a burden of arms draining the wealth and labor of all people, a wasting of strength that defies the American system or the Soviet system or any system to achieve true abundance and happiness for the peoples of this earth. 
He then spelled out the trade-offs that Americans would be forced to endure in order to sustain a massive military undertaking. These were opportunity costs, the things that Americans would be compelled to forego in the con if the contest with the Soviet Union could not be reined in. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone, it's spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy, heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete highway. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This, I repeat, is the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Now, I'll pause for a minute and remind you all, this is Dwight Eisenhower speaking. This is a man who lived his entire adult life in the US military. Um, and when I re-ran those numbers, in the modern era, some of those statistics were remarkably consistent. Others were not, but it's an interesting exercise nonetheless. The point was there are trade-offs, and Eisenhower knew it. If you spent money on those things, it meant by necessity you were not spending them on other things that he thought would be more useful to the growth and development of this country. He hoped to avoid a deepening Cold War or failing that to control its cost. In the ensuing eight years of his presidency, he tried to strike a balance between the need to de deter the Soviet Union from any aggressive designs uh, and the need to protect the U.S. economy from fiscal collapse. He was only partly successful. To return to where I began, the U.S. Constitution stipulated the federal government would maintain a Navy but directed that armies be raised as necessary and that no funds for such a force would be appropriated for more than two years. If the country's leaders were determined to prosecute a long war, the nation's founding document compelled them to return regularly to the American people for money and support. America's founders hoped to avoid the overgrown military establishments that characterized the European empires of the era. Nearly 200 years later, as he contemplated his own farewell, Eisenhower worried that the old model might be gone for good. Until the latest of our world conflicts, he explained in his farewell address on January 17, 1961, the United States had no permanent armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We've been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. This conjunction of immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every, felt in every city, every state house, every office in the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty. At the same time, he was anxious 
that they could pose a threat to the very system that the military was intended to protect and defend. And this is the passage you probably are most familiar with. In the councils of government, he said, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Eisenhower rarely doubted the need for a strong military in order to compete with, face down, and ultimately prevail over the Soviet Union and its communist allies. But he worried constantly about the impact that a decades-long struggle would have on the institutions of government inside of the United States. And yet, despite his popularity and his demonstrated expertise in all things military and security, he was unable to stem the cries to do more. World War II had changed Americans' attitudes towards standing armies and a permanent peacetime military establishment, and the Cold War effectively finished the transformation. By the time that decades-long confrontation had ended, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 8, 1989, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union two years later, America's military establishment and the massive federal government necessary to sustain it had become a permanent fixture in the country's political, economic, and even cultural life. Thank you. So, I, they did not give me the hook, which means I still have time for questions. We have microphones here also. And I can't, I can't see you because I'm staring into a really bright light. So, so yeah, so, yeah, wave or, yeah, yes, sir, right there. Go ahead, sir. I want to ask about an inversion in the historical story. The traditional civic Republican story to which the founders were heir that channeled through English Whig thought, sharply distinguished between the Army and the Navy. Mm, yes. Caesar doesn't cross the Rubicon with a Navy. Right. Cromwell doesn't seize Parliament with a Navy. Yes. Bonaparte doesn't displace the National Assembly with a Navy. The crucial threat to domestic liberty is not the Navy, but is the Army. In the American non-interventionist story of a fall from grace, which is not only your story, but you've retold it quite effectively, in which 1898 is the really dramatic original sin moment. Um, all of the expansion by army, the conquest of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, the American West, the conquest of the Sioux and the Cherokee as distinct from the native Hawaiians. Right. The, what's the difference between Texas and the Philippines or between the Sioux and the Hawaiians? Well, water. The, those who walk water. Yes. Yes. yes, those yes are, yeah. So there's this odd inversion in the middle of the 19th century that says conquest by land suddenly doesn't count as imperialism. The only thing that counts as imperialism is when we're suddenly beefing up the Navy and crossing blue water. Right. And I mean, maybe there's a plausible story to tell about the different dynamic of blue water imperialism, but the story that you're telling then 
isn't the founder's story anymore, right? This, the founder's story has to involve condemning the 19th century of manifest destiny and of territorial expansion by army. Right. Thank you, Jake. Um, a couple points. I don't disagree with you for the most part, but a couple caveats. When I started digging into this, and Tom mentioned, I'm a historian, I'm a, I, have, I have a degree in US history, but the, the 19th century is not really my area of expertise. I went back and, and sort of learned this. What was striking to me was how many people dissented even from territorial expansion. So I quoted a couple people, folks like Lincoln and Webster. There were others. The trouble is that some of the people who opposed territorial expansion did so for the wrong set of reasons. And there was some of that true in the, in the opposition to the expansion to the Philippines. But it was not the Navy that suppressed the Filipino insurrection. It was the US Army. And what was remarkable about that was the, the abuses that were visited upon the Filipinos were horrible even by the standards of those who had fought against the Sioux and the Cherokee in the, in the 1870s and 1880s. The chief of staff at the army at the time of the Filipino insurrection, who was also a great hero of the, of the wars, uh, the frontier wars against the, against the Indians, was appalled by what the Filipino insurrection was doing to the American army. So I think you're absolutely correct. The founders made a very clear distinction between a standing army and a navy. And partly, I would argue, it was a practical consideration, which is to say, you can raise an army. It can be done. You cannot raise a navy like that. So there was a practical consideration there. But you're also absolutely correct that navies did not pose the same threat to domestic institutions as armies did. However, I think that I can pivot to the modern era and say that if the logic of maintaining an air force for the same reason that you would maintain a navy and not simply raise it because you can't create bombers and fighter planes like that, necessitates a vast state that the founders also resisted. So it was possible in the late uh, 18th and into the 19th century to maintain a navy without an enormous, vast bureaucracy to sustain it. But it is no longer the case today. Great questions, great, great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Over here, is this on? Okay, um, I was curious where in the uh, Constitution it talks about the 17 intelligence agencies. <laughs> and uh, I, in a weird way, I think that's even a greater threat to America because right. I don't think, I think they work against America in many ways, put aside obviously the issues with the, the Army and the Navy and that sort of thing. What's, what's your view on that? Um, so uh, I didn't mention it. It was one of the things that I had cut from my lecture. I cut too aggressively. I had more time. Um, the National Security Act of 1947, which created the Central Intelligence Agency and also the Department of Defense, the Department of the Air Force, uh, is a hugely influential piece of legislation and, and to this day. Uh, and But of course, it didn't create the 17 intelligence services. And I... I've done a fair amount of research into the growth of the, of the intelligence bureaucracy. And as with many bureaucracies, the reasons for the growth oftentimes is fairly banal or not, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not some great conspiracy so much as it's just 
one guy trying to get it over on the next guy, and when he's not happy, you know, creates an, you know, creates a new entity to compete with him. And there's a lot of that, and the reason why we've gone from one or two intelligence agencies to 16 or 17. Um, having said all that, I, I'll tell you that I am per personally uh, less troubled by that per se than I am at the idea that we can, you know, we can do to the Iraqis or the Afghans what we attempted to do to the Filipinos 100 years ago. Um, the arguments against it are the same, in fact. Um, and the intelligence community in 2002 and 2003 told us that, and they were ignored. So sometimes they get it right, and the policymakers ignore them, because the policymakers have made up their minds about what they want to do, and they'll find, again, the danger of having 17 intelligence agencies is if 16 get it wrong, but one says what the policymakers want to hear, they'll go to that guy. He's the guy who told us Iraq is a cakewalk, six months, flowers and chocolate, Ahmed Chalabi, prime minister in 2004, all those stories. So that's what happened. Uh, and I think, I do think for all the criticism of the intelligence services for the failure to, to well, the failure to anticipate 9-11 it was a major failure, the failure to um, correctly identify the extent of Saddam Hussein's nuclear weapons program, which didn't exist, um, they were absolutely correct on the difficulty of suppressing an Iraqi insurrection, which they were certain would arise. And I think, I think that part of the story gets lost, uh, uh, unfortunately. <clears throat> Thank you for a great talk. A uh, hundred years ago tonight, the American army under Pershing was forcing the Germans right out of France, tipped the balance uh, in World War I, which we can, a lot of what ifs on that war. We, we kind of went directly from the Spanish-American War to the World War II. It, Curious about your thoughts about World War I, a huge mobilization, demobilization, and a big change to the country and the world. Uh, you. You, you are correct in my defense. I was telling 240 years of American history, and uh, you know, uh, no, you're absolutely correct. Uh, what I, when I've studied World War I, and particularly the mobilization for World War I, um, it was a trial run of sorts for the mobilization that was done in World War II that was much larger, but it was sort of a proof of concept right, that we can do this. Uh, and you, you created an entire class of people in the business community who were determined to do this, to, to prove their worth to the federal government as a partner in mobilizing resources to wage war. Um, and so uh, all, of the, all of the, you know, sort of, and the abuses, the, the, the violations of civil liberties, the oppression of various ethnic uh, minorities in World War I, um, it was not, you know, we, we had the same situation in World War II. So there are, there are parallels between the two conflicts, there's no question. It's just the nature of the mobilization for World War I, because it was not nearly as large as the one for World War II, it didn't affect nearly as many Americans. Um, that's why it did not have the same sort of long-term impact uh, that World War II did, I think. It's my theory. Other questions? If there are hands up, I cannot see them. But yes, okay, yes. So, like, building on uh, that, that World War I, the defense for World War I was that 
there was a necessity to send our troops over there because if the republics in that time period were to fall, then America would be one of the few like republican bastions left on earth. Yeah. And a similar defense was used in World War II, except that that time America was actually attacked. So our constitution states that we use our army in terms of defense, but do you think it's possible that that we might need to project our power overseas in order to defend our country? Is it possible? Of course. Is it likely? No. In most instances, no. Um, and the reason why is, again, it's rather banal. Distance still matters. People would tell you that it doesn't, but it does. The tyranny of distance is what the, is what the military refers to. The Pentagon talks about the tyranny of distance, about how hard it is to fight far away. Well, guess what? It's hard for others to fight far away, too. Um, and it turns out, actually, I was just having coffee today with a friend who, who pointed out that there's actually pretty good research that demonstrates the farther away a conflict is, the less likely you are to succeed in it, which shouldn't shock us, right? It's common sense. So I still think there is genuine wisdom in what Washington said, Washington said. Now, again, he couldn't have imagined cyber terrorism or terrorism or planes or any of that stuff. But he understood distance. <laughs> he understood geography. And the United States of America is blessed. Um, the other thing we have, which he couldn't have anticipated, is nuclear weapons. Think what you will about them. They raise the cost of conflict exponentially. I don't use that word lightly. The benefits that accrue to someone who would attack the United States are fairly small. The costs are existential. So I think we're in a much stronger position today than he was when he said those words. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll probably go to the grave defending that, pr that principle. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, sir. Chris, the... Uh, in my view, the real damage to, to the assault on the Constitution in national defense largely involves non-declared wars, yes. uh, the uh, abdication of responsibility by the Congress, yes. uh, <clears throat> basically taking the easy way out. Having, having said that, as you just mentioned, we have we have national security threats from non-state uh, actors and terrorism. Uh, we, we have challenges that have to redefine our, uh, our armies instead of standing armies. Yes. Uh, we have to organize for that particular challenge. Um, so I'd like your comment about those things and, and how we uh, fulfill the responsibility uh, that the government has first to its citizens, and that is to keep them safe. Right. So first, um, I alluded to this, and I, was, uh, I, I should have dwelled on it a bit longer. It is, uh, it is unconscionable that next year we will be sending to Afghanistan men and women who were born after the passage of the AUMF that is, that is the authority why they are there. It is unconscionable. Members of Congress are derelict in their duty. 
to, it, they, they take an oath to the Constitution. I took an oath too. A lot of people take oaths to the Constitution. They are derelict in their duties. It is unconscionable. So I want to be as emphatic as I possibly can on that. My colleagues, John Glazer and Gene Healy, have argued, I think convincingly, that what we need is not a new AUMF, but a repeal of the AUMF, and an honest-to-goodness debate about what, if anything, is required to replace it. That's not what's on offer right now in the Congress. The AUMFs that are under consideration would dramatically expand the president's authority to wage war with no debate and no oversight and no having to come to the American people periodically and make the case for war. So I am not a supporter of those changes. Terrorism, non-state actors. It is not clear to me that a vast military infrastructure is needed to fight terrorism. The most successful counterterrorism methods implemented since 9-11 have had nothing to do with the U.S. military. Nothing. The most effective thing that was done since 9-11 to prevent a repeat of 9-11 Anyone know? What's that? I heard it. I heard it. Hardening cockpit doors. That's it. Every single thing that has been done since 9-11 under the premise of keeping us safe from terrorism requires that same level of scrutiny. What exactly is this doing to keep us safe from terrorism. And if we subjected all of the things that we suffer now just without even thinking about it, if we subjected each one of those things to that same scrutiny, many of them would be found utterly worthless. So I encourage you all to do that, to, to ask that hard question. I'll finish with this. My colleague, my colleague John Mueller has written papers and books on this, and so most everything I know about this is I know from reading his papers. Um, if the, the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of Transportation passes a new regulation that is intended to keep people safe or to save lives, they're required by law to demonstrate that, to at least make an estimate for the cost of the regulation and, their, and the number of lives saved, and therefore the cost per life saved. This is perfectly reasonable. You can question the methodology and scrutinize different assumptions, but they do it. We've never done that with counterterrorism since 9-11, not once. It seems like it would be a good idea. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat>